This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey everyone, it's Duncan Crary. You're listening to The Concert Cast, a weekly conversation about the tragic comedy of suburban sprawl featuring James Howard Kunstler. Jim is the author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and World Made by Hand. Each year, Jim publishes an annual forecast on his blog at kunstler.com. The 2010 forecast uh, went live this Monday. I'm going to play on today's show a conversation I recorded with Jim about three weeks ago before the holidays asking him to tell me what's going on in his mind as he gears up to write that forecast. And he's going to talk to us today about the climate we're in economically, politically, etc. One thing has uh, changed since this talk regarding the national health care bill, but for the most part, uh, everything is still current and we're all good. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Jim, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Beautiful winter afternoon here and Christmas is approaching. Yeah. And uh, But I'm trying to figure out where we are in podcast chronology. I believe this is the show we're going to be releasing for folks after Christmas, oh. before New Year's. And so we're probably going to want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your annual forecast. Uh-oh. But, but before we get to that, you've got a lot of things you want to say about the current political situation in the U.S., right? Yeah, because, you know, th- those of us in the long emergency realm or orbit or whatever we're in, you know, we think about this stuff, about what's happening. And and the reason I think that it's important to do that is because the outstanding feature of our national life these days is this f- fantastic inability to, to form a coherent consensus about what is happening to us and what we are going to do. So we always want to return periodically to the context of where we're at now in our culture in relation to the things that are happening. It's now the tail end of 2009. We've just come through the great adventure of 2009, which was actually kind of a, you know, it was, a, it was a, maybe a little more boring than we thought it was going to be at the beginning. <laughs> Although, well, I mean, there haven't been any major catastrophes to date, okay? Knock on wood. Right. Maybe we'll get through the last 10 days of the year or whatever it is without something happening. I, in fact, I'm going to New York City tomorrow for three days, and I hope that uh, nobody tries to blow it up while I'm down there at Christmas time. So, uh we want to talk about what's going on, and we're, we're now in the kind of the terminal end here of the healthcare debate. We've got a, a strange kind of mood out there in the financial markets and uh, the banking system and in the economy generally. We've got President Obama going to Copenhagen. Uh, we've got uh, President Obama accepting his Nobel Peace Prize at the same time that he... Um, uh, says uh, pretty uh, uh, plainly that, you know, we, he's leading a country in a series of wars and trying to um, make a case for that, for what he's doing and why. So we got a lot of things that we're concerned about. 
So what do you want to start with? You want to start with healthcare? Yeah, let's start there. Okay. When am I going to get my socialized healthcare? Uh, well, I don't have any right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it would be nice if we weren't spending a trillion dollars a year on foreign adventures, and we could, you know, we could take care of the people in this country who deserve to have as good medical care as all the people in the other civilized nations in the world. Do you support social, uh, national health care policy? When all is said and done, I do, even though I realize that, you know, we're talking about a certain amount of expense and we're starting from a point in public health that's not very good, where we have a, a fairly unhealthy uh, citizenry. But I don't see how that can be avoided one way or another. At the same time, you know, I think we have to be clear that one way or another, it's going to involve the rationing of health care, you know, if only in the sense that we're talking about the apportionment of our resources and what we're able to offer people and how we can do it. But for the moment, uh, just turning to the uh, particulars of the bill that's working its way through the Senate... You know, there are a couple of things that I think we feel strongly about and that are bothering bothering me, maybe other people like me, and maybe you, that, you know, uh, just to start with, I think a lot of us would be very, very happy if our government could accomplish two things just from the get-go, okay? Outlawing the practice of pre-existing conditions in medical insurance, just making it not possible for them to pull that shit on people, okay? And the second thing being not, you know, the related issue of outlawing the practice of canceling people's coverage once they get sick. You know, that just ain't right. And, you know, you could do that in one page of a bill, it, you know, and the, the thing is very troubling is that we have this 2,000-page monstrosity that's working its way through the legislature, um, which appears in many ways to be a, a thing that's been gamed by the pharmaceutical and, and health uh, industry establishment and is only going to end up putting more money in their pockets and creating more problems for us. So, so uh, I think that there's a great deal of dissatisfaction with the way the whole process has gone. And, you know, what, I think what it boils down to is that we got to get rid of a lot of people who are in office now in the House and Senate. And I think that this is going to happen. I think there's going to be a tremendous revolt against the incumbents. Um, uh, to some extent, uh, you know, I hope it, that this movement does not benefit the extreme right wing of the political spectrum in America. But there are a whole lot of people we got to get rid of out there. You know, we got to get rid of Senator Dodd in Connecticut, and, but we got to get rid of Barney Frank, and we got to get rid of Joe Lieberman, and we got to get rid of the friends of the insurance companies. You know, we got to get rid of a lot of these guys. And, and uh, they're equally distributed among the Republican and Democratic Party. And we got to figure out some way to have civilized health care in this country. Right now, the system is so unjust and so cruel to the people who, who are subject to it that you don't even want to think about having to use it. You don't want to think about having to go to the doctor because the process itself is so cruel and inhuman that it, it's almost like some kind of a punishment that, that, you, know, that you, you must have done something bad to be subjected to it, even for something, some normal thing like, you know, a, a, a run-of-the-mill operation, you know, to have your tonsils out, you know, and to go into the system and to be charged $30,000 for a tonsillectomy or something like that, which is, you know, the kind of thing that's going on. 
You know, it's unconscionable. The one thing that we're not talking about in this debate is, you know, the fact that the the people, the citizens who are subject to the health system, they're not customers. They're hostages to the system. They're hostages who are in extremis. They're entering the system when they're at their weakest, when they're sick, and they can't do anything to defend themselves, and they're subject to whatever the system dishes out to them. You know, whether it's $300 Tylenols or $30,000 tonsillectomies, you know, which, which in our parents' day, you know, used to cost, you know, $300. You go into the doctor, you go into the hospital, you get your tonsils out, here's $300, please, you know, big deal. Now, you know, it basically takes a year's income for, for an ordinary procedure to be done. And, you know, we can't do this anymore. So, you know, I, I think that this is one of the things that's going to lead to a tremendous outpouring of, of anger and voter dissatisfaction and maybe even something, you know, comparable to uh, revolution or nascent revolution. Because we're going to move in that direction if we don't start doing things right in this country. But as individuals, we're going to have to also come to terms with the fact that we can't be requesting every single test to be run. You know, I want everything possible, you know, looked at for me to make sure it's okay. We're going to have to also take the the word of the doctor that I'm an expert and this is not a, well, an and, expensive and test you need. Right? Part of this, of course, is, you know, the insurance problem. And uh, the nation has struggled with this for decades of, you know, the malpractice award problem and the unnecessary test and excessive ordering of procedures and doctors basically covering their asses. But, you know, it's like everything else that we're faced with in terms of major problems. We can't make anything happen. We can't reform anything. We can't get anything done. We're going to have to move beyond this or, or we will really be in a state of cultural collapse. Yeah. And the chances are pretty good that we will be. I mean, you know, there is absolutely no guarantee that we're going to come out of this debate with any degree of success in healthcare. Are there any other examples of empires in the past that had major healthcare problems that led to their downfall? Like the Romans were all going crazy from the lead in their pewter or what? Well, you know? I, we don't know how much of an urban legend that is. <laughs> the, the lead, you mean the lead in their pipes? Yeah, or whatever. And, or, their, or the dishes and vessels that they used yeah. and, the, and the plumbing. Right. And after, after right. all, the, the word plumbing comes from the Latin root of the, the name for lead. No, we don't know. Uh, uh, it's it's hard to say of the kind of thing you're you're talking about. I'm I'm just wondering. Know. You know, it seems like America is is doing a lot of uh, a lot of things happening in America right now are echoes of previous empires. Well, yes, but a lot of them also are unprecedented. You know, we're we're in uncharted territory in a lot of the things that are going wrong for us. And you know, for example, you know, we were going to talk about the economy and banking yeah. and 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 finance and you know, this for me as, as listeners will uh, remember, you know, comes under the category of what I call capital finance because I think it's important for those of us who talk about this to understand the very fundamentals uh, of what we mean when we talk about uh, money and, and, uh, and banking and finance. We're talking about the accumulation of surplus wealth and how you deploy it for productive purposes. And, you know, some people call that capitalism, but I don't like that because it's, I don't believe it's an ism and I don't believe it's a, a belief system. It's just a set of laws that dictate the behavior of surplus wealth. And we're running into all kinds of problems with it. 
um, for a number of reasons. One is that we have accumulated so much debt that we can't pay it back at any level. And that's, that's called debt servicing when you're paying back your debts. We can't service our debt. We can't do it at the household level or the corporate enterprise level or at any of the many levels of government. And uh, it's creating a massive uh, problem for us, which is going to redound into our money situation. And, you know, money and, and finance are not exactly the same thing, although they seem to be. You know, money is really about... Uh, the uh, medium of exchange that you're using to represent the value of what you have to offer to people in exchange for things. You know, you have your labor or the product of your ingenuity, which, you know, becomes incorporated in this medium of exchange, money, the dollar, a gold coin, whatever represents it. And you give this to somebody and you'll get an equivalent back in value of whatever you gave them. And that's how we run, you know, an advanced society. In fact, uh, that's how you have to really run any kind of a civilized society where you have a division of labor, where everybody is not doing exactly the same thing. And, you know, all of the activities of daily life are not redundant for every household or every family or every business. So you have this stuff called money. And we're running into problems with both of these, with uh, the U.S. dollar. We don't know whether we're going to have a currency crisis, but there's an awful lot of fear out there that we will because we're gaming the system and we're gaming ourselves. Uh, and we're gaming it by lending ourselves even more money and getting ourselves into even more debt and writing out even more checks to ourselves um, and uh, creating a situation where we will be in a black hole of debt that we, can, we will never be able to pay back. And this will tend to make our medium of exchange, the dollar, uh, more and more and more worthless. We just don't know what the inflection point will be where a consensus forms among all the people who use this medium of exchange, which means today, really, all the people in the world, because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, the, the, the medium of exchange that they go th to as the fundamental unit of, uh, of money. And our status as being the uh, reserve currency is in doubt now because we've done so much damage and we've made so much mischief in our own system. So... What's going on now uh, is that we've got the zombie banks lurching around, playing games with themselves and with us, pretending to pay back money. You know, in the case this week of Citigroup, you know, pretending to pay back their TARP money at the same time that the U.S. Treasury is giving them something like a $30 million tax break, meaning they will not have to pay enormous amounts of taxes, meaning they can keep whatever money they pretend to have on their books you know, and we don't know really what that represents on their books because all the money on all the books of the banks uh, is uh, marked to fantasy, meaning whatever their assets are, are only what they say or believe or want us to believe they are, not what any objective, you know, authority would say that they are. So we don't know that these places are solvent and we're facing a great crisis of solvency, that is to say, whether anything or anyone in America really has any money. And there are an awful lot of people and institutions and companies and governments out there who really don't have money. 
and we're, we are now moving, sort of sliding helplessly into the uh, what I think will be the rather scary year of 2010 uh, with all these uh, uh, fears and worries about who really does have money, who can really pay it back, how will it be paid back, and how will this affect the behavior of uh, uh, our currency and of the things that are happening in our system. We don't know. Well, Jim, I wonder if this is a good time to ask you what the recent situation in Dubai represents in this larger story. Um, uh, Another inflection point of failure, uh, and in a way that's really kind of a microcosm of the bad behavior that's been going on in the world, of the misallocation of resources, of the misallocation of capital into projects that are uh, um, strikingly ridiculous, you know, building a hyper, super, turbo Las Vegas in a part of the world where there's no water, you know, that's actually very far away from anything else. You know, the whole thing is predicated on the idea, the whole Dubai... Uh, explosion of building and uh, resort facilities and hotels and casinos and all the stuff that they built, which is, you know, probably 10 times the amount of stuff that's in Las Vegas. Yeah, they have indoor ski mountains. Yeah, and, and you know, they have golf courses in places, in a place where they you have to desalinate the water to water the golf course. You know what an expensive process that is to, to desalinate water? I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and the amount of water that's required to water our golf course, oh, my God, in the desert, in 123-degree heat? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, and then they've also built a man-made archipelago. Uh, several of them. Yeah. Yeah, two of them shaped like palm trees and one of them shaped like a map of the world. Oh, that's with, right. With villas on, and, and giant hotels on them and, uh, you know, many, many unsold properties that are now falling apart, you know, that are now uh, uh, just sitting there empty that they will never sell. And so you have this massive misallocation of borrowed money because much of it was borrowed, too. It was only, you know, it wasn't even their money. It was money that they got from other places and other people that will never be paid back. The bottom line is Dubai blows, a, you know, a $40 billion hole in the, in the world's uh, debt structure. It's not that big. You know, it's not as big as some of the credit default swap problems that, that AIG caused or the hole that was left by the um, collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, but it's, a, it's, it's comparable to the Russian default of uh, 1998. It's the kind of thing that could cause a lot of mischief down the road. It's a pebble in the pond that will send ripples out that's going to be felt by other financial institutions. So it's, it ain't great. And, uh, you know, and that's part of the baggage that we're dragging into 2010. So... Let's talk about our international affairs uh, and the war in Afghanistan. These are very expensive foreign wars that we're fighting and still involved with. Well, you know, there's a lot of mixed feeling about this in the country. We're not seeing the kind of uprising that we got in Vietnam, you know, back in 1968, 69, 70, when, you know, pretty large part of the American public was freaking out over the war and really objecting to it in a highly emotional way. Of course, a big part of that at the time was the fact that the draft was on 
that you know a lot of young people were indignant about being shanghaied into the army and sent over to this war that they didn't believe in and being shot for a lot of the people who objected the whole vietnam thing seemed to transparently be a a face-saving exercise for uncle sam you know once we had gotten neck deep in the big muddy we were you know we had to um, save our face and and uh, you know we could we could not admit that we'd made a mistake and now the situation's different a lot of people don't really understand the Afghan adventure a lot of people are still very sore understandably about the 9-11-2001 attack um, which by the way you know I I have to repeat I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theories around 2001 I believe that it was a bunch of Islamic young men who got in a bunch of airplanes and knocked the buildings down are you I find it interesting that you need to add that disclaimer do you just get hounded by 9/11 yes conspiracy? I do I get a lot Why? of letters Why are they coming to you I because don't... this is a nation that is very uh, delusional and upset and in which a lot of a lot of reckless memes are bouncing around the blogways and the airwaves and the radio waves, and all of the conduits of information are full of paranoid um, sentiment because we're facing a future that's very troubling, and we can't seem to form this coherent consensus about what we're going to do and what's happening. So anyway, you know, people have a right to be sore about that, and they're afraid, and we're, you know... Uh, in the background of all this is the fact that we're we're we've really entered the zone of the great 21st century contest international contest for the remaining energy resources of the world and this has so far expressed itself mostly in american behavior towards the islamic world in our adventure in iraq in, uh, you know, the troubles going on, you know, between the various sects of Islam and the Wahhabis and the Sunnis and the, the Shiites and the, um, uh, all of the, this tremendous amount of conflict, a lot of it ends up being about who exactly is going to control the terrain where the oil is where much of the world's remaining oil is. And by the way, I don't think that the invasion of Iraq took place so so we could steal their oil. At the very worst, I think it happened... For a number of reasons, a number, you know, a number of reasons. But the oil part of it was, you know, I think we, we simply wanted to control uh, the area where we bought the oil. I think we were, you know, fully um, expecting to keep on purchasing it pretty much. So it's not really a matter of theft, but the, the issue of whether you can control either the landscape or the people who inhabit the landscape in these places of the world, that's the big question. To some extent, the fire in Iraq has, to some extent, burned itself out, although, you know, there were major bombings, you know, just within the last 10 days in in Baghdad. Afghanistan's another question. 
you know, my idea for many years was that we're trying to make a bologna sandwich out of Iran with, you know, we've got a military presence in Iraq on one side and a military presence of Wonder Bread on the other side uh, on, uh, in Afghanistan. And in between these two slices of Wonder Bread, we're turning Iran into the bologna in the middle of the sandwich. And the whole idea is that, you know, we're going to moderate and influence their behavior by scaring them, by surrounding them, encircling them, uh, you know. And I don't, I don't really see a whole lot of evidence that, you know, since 2001 that we've succeeded in doing that very much. You know, we invaded uh, Afghanistan for the first time right after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, and we invaded Iraq in 2003. So we've had, a, in effect, a garrison on each side of Iran for most of this decade. Um, it hasn't seemed to uh, uh, change their mind about building atom bombs. They just put three American hiker schlemiels on, or they announced that they were going to put these guys on trial as uh, spies, when in fact they were just three young schlemiels who were hiking in Kurdistan and walked uh, you know, across the border and got snatched by the Iranian authorities. So we have yet another hostage situation going on, although it's not the same as the one in 1979. But, you know, so we, we're in Afghanistan. There's loose talk that we're in there to protect a uh, Konoko, proposed Konoko pipeline that will go from the Soviet, former Soviet republics down uh, towards the Indian Ocean. And that there's some belief out there that the, the reason that we're there in Afghanistan is to make sure that pipeline will be safe, can be built, etc. I don't believe that for a minute. First of all, there are more Islamic maniacs in that corner of the world than anywhere. I don't. How are you going to defend a pipeline like that, unless you have, a, a, you know, a heavily armed soldier or a pillbox or something every five hundred yards going across the entire length of the nation for an unlimited length of time? And we're not going to. We know one thing. All other things being equal, we're not going to be in Afghanistan forever or even for a, a substantial portion of forever, which might be, you know, the lifetime of a pipeline. So the idea that we could even protect this pipeline is, just doesn't make any sense at all. It's totally absurd. Even the idea that we'd be able to build it and that people wouldn't be blowing it up constantly, incessantly, you know, it's crazy. Jim, I want to ask you, 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 one of your catchphrases is that suburbia is the greatest misallocation of resources in history. But what about these massive conflicts in the Middle East that we're financing right now? Are, we, are, we, are these a misallocation of resources? Certainly they are, in the sense that, you know, every billion dollars that we spend over there, and I think it's estimated that we're spending about a billion dollars a day over there, is money that we're not able to devote to, uh, you know, a national health care program that would be civilized, that we can't uh, devote to rebuilding the railroad system in this country, rebuilding the economy in ways that will allow us to continue to be civilized and to, to thrive. Really, just about any project that we might undertake that would uh, help us thrive in the future is at the expense of what's going on in this part of the world. But I have no idea anymore why it's necessary to prosecute this war in Afghanistan. I don't, we're certainly not going to exterminate 
uh, Islamic radicalism because it just moves over into Pakistan. You know, I mean, there's more of it in uh, in the the outer provinces of Pakistan than anywhere else in the world. And we certainly haven't declared any intention of invading Pakistan. Maybe we're there. You know, maybe our hidden agenda in Afghanistan is to, uh, you know, be close enough to Pakistan so in the event that their government falls and their estimated several dozen to a hundred odd nukes don't get into the hands of the Islamic radicals and we can go there and very quickly snatch them away or gain control over them. I have no idea otherwise what, you know, what the plan is over there. We can't control the landscape. It's the most forbidding terrain in the world. You know, not only are the mountains some of the highest and and ruggedest mountains in the world, but they're bare and barren. There's no place to hide there except in caves. You know, you can't move stuff around without being noticed. We don't even have reason to believe that this is a, you know, a governable country. So to some extent, it looks like a game of pretend and maybe even something similar to what we had in Vietnam, you know, which is face-saving. You know, we're, we're, we're face-saving. But I, I don't want to uh, sound too incoherent about this myself. I would have to get back to what I said a little earlier, that, you know, the background of, of all of this is this larger 21st century contest for the remaining energy resources in the world. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of listeners email me asking me if I will ask you about your thoughts on how dependent the U.S. military is on fossil fuels. I mean, it's a huge... Oh, there's no question that... They, I mean, the, I think that, you know, it's a well-known fact that they are the largest user of oil and especially of motor fuels in the nation, in the USA. I mean, the, of all the things that we run in America... The U.S. military uses the most oil of all of our activities, you know, so... You might want to add that. You know how you go down your litany of, you're not going to run Walmart and Disneyland and 200 million... You might want to add the U.S. military in that little list you give Well, you're right. It's true. And so the implications of that, they run broad and deep. We don't know how long we can even behave this way. That we don't know how long we can continue to have an army that works the way it's designed to work now with these massive continual resupply of refined fuel so that the Humvees and, and the other things that we run can, can do their thing. The supply trucks, you know. The other thing, of course, look, everybody knows, you know, every, everybody older than 12 years old in the world knows that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. That, you know, nobody goes in there on a military expedition, you know, whether you're Alexander the Great or a Russian general in uh, the late 20th century, nobody gets out of there alive. And, you know, it eats up empires. Not only is it some of the harshest terrain in the world, but it's also, you know, it's landlocked. It's in Central Asia. You know, it's as far away as you can get from the United States and still be on the planet Earth. So the, whole, the resupply problems are just terrible. The only other thing that I can imagine that's sort of in the picture, which we're not seeing, is the relationship between Pakistan and India. And, you know, our vested interest in seeing that Pakistan and that the Islamic radicalism within Pakistan that that Pakistan may even be vested in in some way doesn't get out of hand. And um, we need to have some mechanism for ensuring that this doesn't happen. But 
one of the things that could happen in the period ahead is a conflict between India and Pakistan directly. And since the attacks in Mumbai about a year ago or so, my guess is that India is in a situation where they're not going to tolerate another Mumbai-like assault on themselves. And, you know, the next time something like that happens, you know, they're going to reply in a really harsh way. God knows what that will start. So it's a very fragile part of the world. I don't imagine we're making things any better by being there. I can't see that we're going to uh, really civilize this country in the sense of making it, make it a governable, large entity. You know, it's going to be the, the united city of Kabul for the most part, and that'll be it, you know, just uh, Mr. Karzai in the capital city if he can hang on. And the rest of the place is just going to be contested tribal terrain. And that's, that's it. So it's very troubling. And, uh, and, you know, for the moment we're stuck there, we're, we're pounding sand down a rat hole there, pounding money down a rat hole. And personally, if it was up to me, I'd just say, you know, we got to get out of there. Okay, Jim, well, these are the things that you're thinking about right now in December as you gear up to write your forecast for 2010, which is an annual tradition on your blog. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, I apologize for not being, you know, all that coherent about Afghanistan. It's, it's such uh, a kind of a, a dark place now of, of American policy and even of uh, the American spirit that I think it's hard for any of us to come up with a coherent idea of what we're doing there and what's going to happen there. And, you know, we're, we're struggling to explain it to ourselves, and I'm struggling to explain it to myself and to the listeners. So, so listen to that, you know, with that um, caveat in mind. Okay, well, Jim, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with for your forecast. And, uh, you know, the way this recording session is, we're, we're doing this before the holidays. So I don't even know. This show might have come out after the forecast is published. But either way, folks, this is what Jim was thinking about when he was gearing up to do that. So have a great new year, everyone listening. And, Jim, you— Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're going to hoist a glass to all of our listeners out there. Hope that, you know, however things— uh, start rolling out in 2010 that you're prepared, that you're going to be brave, that you're going to have some uh, clusterfuck nation fortitude. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're glad to have you on board and we're all heading to that same place together. All right. We'll see you next year, folks. Hello, uh, Jim and Duncan. It's Rick from British Columbia. Thank you very much for your podcasts. I very much enjoy them, and I've listened to most every one of them, and I do agree with so much of what Jim has to say. But on his program on uh, Disney and his uh, assessment of Disney, that's, uh, I'm afraid that's where we have to part company. You see, I am a recent convert at the age of 50 to uh, the wonders of Disney, having visited it now twice in the last couple of years. Uh, the first time a couple of years ago when my wife took me rather reluctantly to visit with the children to uh, Florida. And, you know, I had such a, a fantastic experience there. The quality of presentation of Disney is something I've never really seen before in other places. You know what, uh, what Jim talks about, the half-assed uh, Epcot Center, I really have to disagree with that. 
maybe you're talking about two different things, Disney and the Disneyfication of the world, which I think are quite different. Disney was the original. It's, uh, it was fashioned uh, quite, uh, quite honorably by, uh, by Walt and his Imagineers with the, kind of the best of intentions and the best, uh, the, the best uh, sort of motives. They really, really had it in their mind to, uh, to please their customers. And they were motivated by that, and and the quality that went into the creation of those things is, uh, you know, I've never seen it before, and it, it's kind of a pity that we can't have that in our cities. And it had to be sort of a creation in an amusement park. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Hey, Duncan, just got done listening to Consulcast number ninety-four, the Disneyfication of America, and I just wanted to make a comment about Jim's observation concerning the prevailing theme of death in Disney World that uh, Jim noticed. Um, There's an ongoing urban legend about Walt Disney. Specifically, when he was a child, the legend goes, uh, he accidentally killed a critter. I don't know if it was his family dog or or a squirrel or a bird, but he, he killed an animal as a child unintentionally. And he was so mortified, the legend goes, he could not bring it back to life again. And he became obsessed with reanimating the dead. And that was the triggering moment in his life that set him on the path to becoming an animator. That is one of the things that uh, gets talked about among Hollywood types and among animators. Uh, Walt Disney had an obsession with death and life and reanimating the dead. And uh, that part of the animatronics which were those those robots at Disney World that that you know the little hall the presidents and they and they talk the animatronics was his brainchild and he urged his little geniuses in his workshop to come up with these animated uh, three dimensional dummies that could speak and move and again it was part of his alleged obsession again all urban legend no proof just what's said about the man but anyway I thought I'd share that and thanks for the podcast bye bye. That's it for today's show and for the 2009 season of the Concertcast. Happy New Year, everyone. I look forward to joining you again next year. I will not be putting out a podcast next week, however, because I will be traveling with Jim to record the staged reading of his play Big Slide in Rochester, New York. I've put a link to uh, the event information for that stage reading on our website at concertcast.com, or you can go directly to the theater website at muccc.org. That's three C's. This is a pay-what-you-can admission show, so if you're in the region, please join us. Say hello to me. Happy New Year, everyone. You've been listening to The Kunstler Cast, featuring James Howard Kunstler. To leave a listener comment, call toll-free at 866-924-9499. Send email to letters at kunstlercast.com. You can listen to all of our past programs, join our email list, find out how to book Jim to speak in your area, and talk about the show with other listeners at KunstlerCast.com. I'm your host, Duncan Crary. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 